Our scripture reading is from Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning with verse 6 through verse 20. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those who awake will, you, will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You devise shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his, righteous, his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, that would be the posture of our hearts this day to inquire of you, to sit before you, to hear your voice, to see your beauty. That's our hope. That is our prayer. In Christ's name, we offer it. Amen. Actually, to listen to you from this vantage point, seeing that prayer is quite remarkable, and, and that is where we head as we head into a passage that no doubt will raise some questions, as it has for me this week, and our prayer is, my prayer is that as we wade into this together, that the Lord would teach us. It was um, 70 years ago when George Orwell, you'll know that name, some of you, was putting the finishing touches on a book that was published the year after called 1984. 
um, a book that remains uh, one of the most powerful warnings ever issued about the dangers of a totalitarian society. It didn't come out of his fertile, creative imagination. It came out of his life observations. He was a, a, an English novelist born in India whose family moved him around, and it ended up that he fought in the Spanish Civil War. He watched the rise of Nazi Germany and the emergence of a, a Soviet empire. So as George Orwell wrote, he wrote watching and wrote concerned in an effort to depict and to show the worst human society imaginable because he had seen glimpses. He writes for a purpose, and that is to, to convince readers to avoid any path that might lead down that road. And in doing so, he used these words. If you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. It was a British uh, painter, poet, dramatist, Hugo Kloss, who wrote these words. I'm a person who is unhappy with things as they are. We cannot accept the world as it is. Each day we should wake up foaming at the mouth because of the injustice of things. They're writing about an old problem, though. It's as old as the human race. It's not just then or now. This is an old one. For since the beginning of time, we might say, <clears throat> there have been pictures of this on display to a watching world, pictures of greed and oppression, of exploitation and violence and genocide. The Old Testament prophets address this repeatedly around the theme of justice. Even Habakkuk, our man Habakkuk, comes right out of the gate in chapter 1 to say justice never goes forth. That's what he's watching. And that's what George Orwell had seen. And that's what we don't have to look very far to see it in our world. International Justice Mission is a global organization that protects the poor from violence in the developing world. With over 750 lawyers in 17 field offices, they've documented that, estimated, that 4 billion people around the world are not protected by their justice systems. That's over half of the world population. That's every other one of you, so to speak. There's an old saying, I guess, the only time most people think about injustice is when it happens to them. But we can't turn on the news, can we, without seeing some new display of that in a broken world. And sometimes we simply find another channel. But it's still there. It doesn't go away. And the reason that we continue to circle around this is that we can imagine better. We can imagine better. And because we can imagine better, we can take Habakkuk's cry as our own. How long? Why, God? 
We can take Habakkuk's cry as our own. It was the Babylonians or the Chaldeans that we've encountered here in this short book. The Babylonians, Chaldeans, were simply the latest rendition of a totalitarian society, pounding away at the nations in their, in their way. Habakkuk asked the question, why? And if you were here last week, you, you heard this chapter 2 unfold that Habakkuk is on the watchtower. He's waiting and looking and waiting on an answer. And he has heard from God who says, wait for it. Well, today he's still on the watchtower. And it's almost, if that was wait for it, it might be as simple as what we come to today is wait for this. Because this is the story. This is the reason Habakkuk and Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, you have reason to hope. Reason to hope in the midst of the agony of this world. When we walk out of here in a few minutes, it would be with reason to hope. Maybe a little clearer, maybe a little crisper, maybe a little firmer than it was yesterday. By taking a look at what Habakkuk heard and saw on the watchtower. You see, the world, your head and your heart, imagines should be, will be. The, the, the things that you and I suppose should be true and before us one day will be. You see, it's not a fairy tale. There is a king who reigns. And he has the last word. And every wrong will be made right. With Judah and Babylon, we learn that there is no escaping the justice of God. And that is welcome news for those who are his. It's a solitary hope of the whole world. We've run into a passage, how we're going, to, we're going to go about this in a way. What we're reading is hard to read. It's hard to get a handle on. It's actually taunt songs. That's what this is. That's what the, the, the observers look at this and they say, what we have here is a taunt song. You know what a taunt is. That's, it's a tirade, often with elements of satire, prophetic judgments in poetic form that mock the defeated. It's the kind of song a once oppressed people might direct against its former oppressor. That's what we're reading. It's words that these people will then sing one day in the face of that, that reality, that brutal reality. And while these taunt songs really have Babylon as their focus, it's true about any oppressive regime and empire or individuals that choose to make life work apart from God. You see, that's the dilemma. Each of these five taunt songs, uh, Habakkuk gives us a handle on this passage. It's the word woe. It, you, you heard it as we read it together. The word woe appears five times. Actually, you heard it five times. And actually, what you're seeing here, you're encountering, is five groups of people, five gangs, we might say, who won't get away with it. 
And for our time, what we're going to do is I want to introduce these five gangs to you, these five groups of people. And, and then, we're going to, then we're going to consider two redemptive notes that Habakkuk sounds throughout. These, these taunt songs fall into, uh, there's five of them, they fall into two series, and they both conclude with a note about the glory of God. Hang on to that, because we'll be back. So who are, these, who are these gangs? Well, they have name tags. Let me show you their name tags as they go. And we're going to quickly move through this long passage just for the sake of time and, and um, lots of reasons, actually. But one of them is time. The first group we encounter is in verse 6, verses 6 through 8. And we might call these the pillagers, those who have pillaged, those with whose greed and aggression has led them to do what they've done. Uh, this woe has to do with the wealth accrued in the efforts to build an empire at no cost. Uh, we don't need Habakkuk to tell us or remind us that greed is a natural but destructive characteristic of one who will not trust God. This is the group of people that will run over anybody to build that empire. It's their greed and aggression that has, has driven this. And what they hear is that those who plunder others with themselves will one day themselves be plundered. So there's a warning those are the pillagers. The next group we run into in verse 9, you see woe again. If the first woe is directed against the empire builder, so is the second. But what is coming to focus here with this group is this woe condemns those who seek security and economic gain at the expense of others. We might call them the exploiters. So we have the pillagers with greed and aggression, the exploiters who do whatever it takes at the expense of others, those who are seeking security for themselves while denying it to the people that they exploit. It's that class system, you know, the haves and the have-nots, those in power, those who have no power are exploited. The pillagers, the exploiters, and then the next group, if you keep going down in verse 12, you see woe again. We run into the arrogant slave drivers. The group of people, this probably, frankly, is the same group of people just taking another angle on it. This is the despot who builds new cities on the basis of his conquests. He's driving them as slaves, pronouncing judgment on the ruthless but futile efforts of the tyrant to perpetuate his fame. We're going to come back to verse 14. That's one of those redemptive notes. But we'll keep going as, as Habakkuk takes us right into another one in verse 15. A fourth woe. A fourth woe. This one pronounces judgment on Babylon's sadistic and humiliating treatment of others. Just sadistic, humiliating. We might call them the demoralizers. Or the dehumanizers. Because that's what they're doing. They're, they're in the process of depriving persons or, in, or groups of positive human qualities. Treating them as, and you've heard this, less than human. I mean, we see that even today, right? You know, it's not far from here that, there's, that, that there is human trafficking that goes on in Williamson County. Where 
boys and girls are traded for favors. There is human trafficking. trafficking. There, is, there are human rights violations all over the globe. There are war crimes even today. There's genocide being practiced even today where people are treated as less than human. I need not even <coughs> suppose that you're not aware of what happened in this country and in many ways continues in this country of individuals being treated as less than human. Sometimes we just see it on the news. Sometimes we drive by it and aren't aware. But some people experience it. Like Elie Wiesel, who with his father endured the horrors of the Holocaust. Auschwitz and Buchenwald. Who wrote in his book in 1960, the book Night, describing that experience, what it's like to be the object of the persecutor, the arrogant slave driver, the demoralizer, the oppressive regime. He says it's one more stab to the heart, one more reason to hate, and one less reason to live. I don't know what that's like. I have to stretch to get there. But when I do, I ache and so do you because it's real. And we can imagine better. Some, a good number of you watched the film uh, here this week, Exodus. First-hand accounts of refugees fleeing the violence and the destruction and missiles that had destroyed homes and communities and towns and villages and are wandering Europe looking for a place to land. And one of the themes that recurred throughout that little interview, one interview after another during that film were these words, from a refugee who describing his life or her life, this is not something you choose. This is something that happens to you. What Habakkuk is watching is not anything that anyone chose, but what has happened. And he says, why? How long? He's on the watchtower still waiting, and he's heard God say, wait for it. And God continues to move toward him and says, there's one more group of people I want you to meet. Because what you find in this group really runs throughout all five groups. There in verses 18 through 20, the woe is actually verse 19, but it begins with the verse before. And what we find there is a woe that denounces idolatry. It's the worship of false gods as futile and foolish. Babylon, you see, was an idolatrous culture held together by greed, aggression, ruthless exploitation, dehumanization, and violence. That was Babylon. And we find similar places today, don't we? Held together by their foolish pursuit of something that had taken the place of the living God. 
We laugh about it when we read about these wooden carved images that they circle their lives around. I mean, it's, it's comical to us. Worshiping, ordering their lives around something that they had made themselves instead of the one who made them. It's comical. Until... Until we realize, wait, 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 we haven't carved anything. But what have we ordered our lives around that we have made or are trying to make? John Calvin said about this, we're reading about the Babylonians and all of the injustice and what was wrong with them, but we find ourselves in this story. Oh, maybe we're not exploiting others. Maybe we're not exploiting others. Maybe we're not oppressing and treating less than human many of the people that we encounter. (laughs) But we sure find ourselves in this last group, don't we? The group that really becomes the seedbed of all else. It's the sin from which all other sins flow, the fountain, idolatry. Calvin also said, we are all master craftsmen. We are all master craftsmen. Of idols. They're internal, Ezekiel tells us. We set them up in our hearts. Ken Sandy is helpful in saying, helping us recognize an idol is anything apart from God we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. Got any of those? In biblical terms, it's something other than God that we set our heart on that motivates us that masters us and rules us, anything we trust, fear, or serve. Yeah, we got that. There's a great irony that instead of trusting the one who made me, we trust something that we have made. As we step back from this passage, and I know some of you are ready to, (laughs) when we step back from it, the wrath of God God is a hard topic. Woe after woe after woe, is, is tra- the thread is traced to the heart of God and what the rest of Scripture calls the wrath of God against which all that is unrighteous and all that is broken and all that is evil in this world. And I say it's a hard topic because have you ever tried to really unpack that with a friend who didn't know the story? For some of us, we have a hard time unpacking it for ourselves. Understanding how does the wrath of God fit into this picture that, for the most part, I like. (laughs) Well, let me caution you. Let me caution us. Because any narrative of the world, any understanding of the world, without a final justice, is ultimately a world of injustice. And you can imagine better. And you do. That there's something in this world besides injustice that will carry the day. Otherwise, Camus was right. Sartre was right. What's the point? But there's something deep in your heart that says, no, there is a point. There is reason to hope in a broken world if I just knew what that was. 
And what Habakkuk hears is, here's the reason. Here's the reason that you can hope amidst the brokenness of this world. You remember I said these woes fall in two series. There's five of them, so they're not even. Three and two. But they both end on a note about the glory of God. Verse 14 and verse 20, and that's what we're going to do with the moments we have left. In verse 14, we, we read about what the earth is becoming. That's our reason for hope in the brokenness of this world. It's what the world is becoming. Habakkuk hears. He says, he, he records it this way. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, as far as you can see, that world, this world, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. He's, he's hearing and writing words that Isaiah had used before, previously, but expanded a little bit. Isaiah was talking about the knowledge of the Lord. Habakkuk stretches it out to, to highlight the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. A significant difference, overlapping for sure, but the difference that Habakkuk is bringing to our understanding is that the glory of the Lord is his essential being as he has revealed it, as he's revealed it to us. It's who he is. It's what's essential to him. Uh, since he can only be known insofar as he reveals himself or lets himself be known, maybe another way of saying it, to know him is to know his glory. To know him is to know his glory. We can know things about him for sure. And we can, we can tiptoe into this arena where, yes, I know him sort of. If you've been a part of the Christian life for a while, you may be able to say with me, yeah, I know him uh, sort of. There are things that he's revealed about himself that I can, that I can cling to. And has, but Habakkuk is, is stretching us a bit further to say that there's something about the glory of the Lord that I know that fills the earth. It was the tabernacle at one time. You read about it in Exodus 40. The tabernacle, you know, that portable worship center, that, that tent, that worship center that would go on the back of a few camels and donkeys. That tabernacle was set up and the glory filled that tabernacle so much that the people would not and could not enter. The same thing was true in, in 1 Kings 8 when the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The temple made of stone, a larger structure. But the glory fills that temple. But Habakkuk stretching it further to say, no, it's not just a tabernacle. It's not a temple. It's the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So we can have hope in the midst of the brokenness and the agony of this world because of what the world is becoming. Because Habakkuk's promise to us, God's promise to Habakkuk, which becomes ours, is that that's what the world is becoming. And we may not see that yet, but that world has broken into this one, and we do see evidences of it. I mean, this, our gathering this morning is a glimpse of it. We sit in this room, and we glimpse forever together. We glimpse the glory of God as he's revealed himself in Christ to us. 
And so we can have hope in the midst of the brokenness of this world because of what the world is becoming. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 20, he talks about what the temple is now. You see, the temple, that literally palace, is the heavenly sanctuary from which the Lord, the great king, rules his world. He is on a throne in the temple. The Lord is in his holy temple, we read. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Psalm 11 put it like we read this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. He is sick. He's not oblivious, Habakkuk, to what you're describing. And the lament of your heart, God sees. He sees and he reigns and he rules. You see, the woes of judgment on the proud and the wicked culminate in something. They culminate in the universal silence of worship in the glorious presence of the incomparable God. The prophet Zechariah put it like this, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself for his holy dwelling. Habakkuk saying, that's what I want. A God who rouses himself. A God who moves toward this brokenness. And as he does, we read in Psalm 46, a familiar passage to many of you, be still and know that I am God. But a better way of understanding Psalm 46 verse 10 is be quiet. Almost shut up. Be quiet, says the Lord of the world the king of the world. I will be exalted in, among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You see, when God acts in judgment, which is another hard topic for us, it is always in his redemptive purposes. You see, it was in the death of Christ, wasn't it? That God himself bore the full weight of his ultimate wrath against all sin and evil. And that's why, as I said earlier, this news is welcome news to those who are his. But it's a solitary hope for the world. To come to the one who is righteous and good and full of mercy. Who rights every wrong and is at work doing that very work. In conclusion, I promise... George Orwell wrote, as I said earlier, if you want a vision of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The Persians would crush the Babylonians years later. But there's a truer vision of the world. George Orwell could accurately describe the agony, but he couldn't see around the corner. You see, it's not a boot stamping on a human face forever. It's the foot of a righteous redeemer on the neck of all of his enemies for a time until they are defeated. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And as he came out of an empty tomb, that ending was sealed. 
And we live between an empty tomb and the world to come, but one that has broken into this world, which is why we can have hope in the midst of the brokenness and the agony of this world. You see, we want a king. We want every right. We want to right every wrong or see that done. We need a king because we can't do it and all others are inadequate. And the truth of the story is that we have a king who sees, who is in his temple where he reigns. A king who drank the cup of wrath that was yours. That is for the nations until they come to him. You know, giving a title to a sermon is always a little tricky. You want a, you want a title that is succinct that is faithful to what's unique about this particular text. And the title that I chose for this one, frankly, could be a title for any sermon between Genesis and Revelation. (laughs) Because we are in the story that is rightly understood to be the return of the king. He has come and he will come. Some of you know, it's also the title of the third book of a trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien, where Sam at some point declares, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Now, you've heard that multiple times, but you need to hear what follows. A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. See, everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. That's the world Habakkuk is looking at. Once broken and lost. But there's a king. He listens. He reigns. He rules. He comes. And when he does, he offers you and me life and freedom and joy and forgiveness, even in the midst of the brokenness of this world, as we anticipate with Habakkuk, the world to come, which has. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask that you would stretch our imaginations to see things with clarity that you've revealed to us, We thank you that you've broken into a broken world and that you have begun to make all things new, to turn things right side up. And we welcome that. 
And we ask that you would help us between your comings. The ability, the tenacity, the intention to live by faith. Faith in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.